All right, if you guys have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And we're just going to begin this with a prayer, so I guess I had you guys sit down, but if you could stand up, we're going to pray this prayer together, and then we're going to dive right into it. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Blessed are the readers, hearers, and keepers of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stay standing while I I read this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like a thunder saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a, two, a, two-edged, a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, uh, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are those seven churches. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. So here in this, I just want to get going into it because a bit of this is introduction and and by way of kind of concluding the introduction into this book before we get into this. But here we see a good picture of who John is. That John is a brother, he is a partner, and he's a patient endurer in what he's seen and what he's done. And in this, I think a couple things are important. That John, he calls himself a brother. And in Christ, we are made equal through his blood. Amen? We are made equal through his blood. John has seen the face of Jesus as described this week, and he knows that we are all equal before him, that there is no one greater than Jesus, not even the apostle, the apostle John, who was given this vision. In the new life that we are given in Christ, we are given a more expansive family, a more extensive family than just those that we have by our earthly blood. And this family includes every tribe, nation, and tongue that is ever, ever was and ever will be here on earth. 
This new family was purchased by the blood of Jesus and in his death on the cross. And our family, our new family, is not one simply of flesh, but it is one purchased by the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in this, John is our brother. John is our brother. And he is not greater than us. He says we're in the same family. We're on the same playing field. He's not greater. Although, as he writes this letter, we are to listen to him carefully. But John is also, he says he's a partner in the tribulation. He's a partner in the imprisonments that have taken place, the, the persecutions that would have taken place towards Christians. He is a prisoner of the state. And he is imprisoned for speaking about and doing the work of Jesus and the church. Many scholars believe that he was not put to death because they didn't want John to be put to death. He was so popular. He was so elevated in the eyes of the church that they didn't want Christians to incite riots. So instead of killing him, they exiled him to the island of Patmos. They put him on this island and there John suffered. He is not writing this letter as a man of privilege, as one who is sitting on a throne speaking down to his people, but as a fellow, as one who has suffered, who is suffering, and one who understands what it's like to have your faith in Jesus pushed to its limits. He is not above imprisonment. He's not above torture or death, just as this is true for the people that he is writing to. And in this letter, we are given the example of Jesus, but also the example of John as one who has suffered. He is our brother, but he's also gone before us in the suffering. He's seen it. He's been there. He's done it. And when he asks us to endure, he's speaking as one who has endured. And we are a part of this kingdom that will endure forever, whatever the world may throw at us. And John is a witness to this. But even in that, he's a patient endurer. He's one that endures. And this is why I believe that this is the Apostle John and not just some other person named John who wrote this letter. The Apostle John who was the best friend of Jesus. He endured this far. He endured to the point where he was exiled to an island and he is going to continue to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Again, Jesus did this, but John did this as well. And we can see this that in our brothers and sisters in Christ, many of them we can see who have patiently endured no matter the cost. That there are no limits to following Jesus in our life. Even if you're exiled on an island or, or maybe we feel exiled online these days. That Jesus is there with us. That Jesus is there with us. He's there in our imprisonment and in our persecution. Christ is with us. And this is a beautiful thing. And this is the... Major reason why I don't like arguing about end times and what they will look like, because regardless of what they will look like, Christ will be present with us. His Spirit will be ministering to us. Jesus will be with His people. He is and will be forever our High Priest, representing God to us through His sacrificial acts, but also commending us and committing us to God. We can rest assured in the fact that Jesus patiently endured, that John patiently endured, that many saints patiently endured, and in their endurance that God was with them and God will be with us because He cares that much about us. 
He is being in, with us, and, and in His being with us, it gives us the ability to endure forever like John. To endure it with patience and with grace. We can do that. And I admit that sometimes um, Jesus is harder to see than in other times in, in our lives, but we get to invite Him in to reveal Himself in our situations. We get to speak and ask God to come. That's why every Sunday we pray, Lord, will you be here? Because we want to see you. And we want to patient, and we know in seeing you, we'll be able to patiently endure. But then we also have John, he says, in the Spirit. And it's interesting because just as sometimes you guys may feel that my sermons gloss over a point and don't touch on a point that you're like, this is interesting, and that might raise some questions. Every commentator that I had, not one addressed the in the spirit thing. They said, well, he must have been filled with the Holy Spirit here. But we can't be absolutely sure what this means. But it appears that John had a vision that was unexplainable. That if you were with him, you wouldn't have been able to see it necessarily. You would, you would have just, this was a, an experience that John has. And it seems to be that this vision was otherworldly. That it was otherworldly. That the Apostle Paul um, once said that he was caught up into the third heaven. Without any explanation, he was caught up in the third heaven. Well, he does explain a little bit. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. In other words, this is the same thing. This is very close to what John experienced here in the Spirit. It's hard to describe what in the Spirit means. We don't know his state. We don't know exactly how this vision came to him. And I believe that they can, but I do believe that they can happen to us as well. These wonderful visions that God can give, these things that we can be in the Spirit, that we can learn from the Holy Spirit, that we can have dreams and visions that are things that are unexplainable to us, yet they can come. And how we get them is unexplainable. I don't think that they're manageable. I don't think that you can force them to come. I think that they're unexplainable. And sometimes the situation and the circumstances are unexplainable. The timeline is unexplainable. But at the same time, this can happen to us. And actually, one of the things I was praying about while looking at this in the spirit is that 1 Corinthians encourage us to desire and to be eager for the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So we can desire to be in the spirit as John was in the spirit here as well. But then John, as he's in the spirit, he hears this loud voice. And I just want to make a note on loud voices because over and over and over in Revelation, what happens is there's a loud voice. And these loud voices are fairly common occurrences. And it's like a, it's a bit of a surprise. It's a bit of a boo, like just where it just goes and it's this loud voice and it's, it's a little bit scary. You can see that at times John felt like he was one that was dead when this loud voice came. And it's like loud voices that come out of nowhere. And John didn't see it. But then, once he sees it, Jesus is like, hey, I need you to pay attention and write down what you see. I need you to pay attention and write down. So these loud voices get John's attention and then they go from there. But when we see this, we can see that even John in his vision, it's not all like peaceful, euphoric visions. Like there's a little bit of fear and trembling going on here in John, not really 
fully understanding, I don't think, what everything that's going on, except for there's just this loud noise, and he recognizes that he's supposed to notice something. And then lastly, it says, on the Lord's Day. And a lot of people over the years have used this to argue when the Sabbath should be, when the church should meet. This is not the Sabbath. This is the Lord's Day. The Sabbath is on Saturday. It has been uh, established that way in the Jewish tradition, and it still is. However, the first century Christians started calling Sunday the Lord's Day because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. This is the majority, this is the reason why the majority of uh, Christian traditions still hold church on Sunday, but I don't want us to confuse it with the Sabbath that is traditionally held on Saturday. That's when it was held. The day has never changed, and it doesn't also mean that we have to have church on Sunday. This is what we do. This is what I've always done, is had church on Sunday, but I but that doesn't mean that we have to have it on that day. We don't have to get in arguments about what day the Sabbath should be on because there are good Christian churches that meet on different days and we can be unified with those churches uh, when, uh, in, in every way. And I don't believe that this in the Lord's Day is an argument for having uh, Christian churches gather on Sunday. We get to be, remain humble about this point and meet when we meet because this is when Grace and Mercy meets is on Sunday. And so um, I guess we could start Mondays, but then that would be real difficult for people that go to work and probably you guys wouldn't like it very much. Although some Mondays, the same amount of people would show up. So that's just the truth of it. Then we've got John being on the island of Patmos. And, and think of this like kind of an Alcatraz-like, but just a little further out. The Patmos... The island of Patmos is in the Aegean Sea. It's about 30 miles from the mainland. It's just over 13 square miles, so there was enough room to roam around on there. And John is in prison as a political prisoner because that's what this island was for. Some scholars think that there were quarries there that made people put to work, but, they, but then I heard some other archaeological people say that they couldn't find any evidence of this. But this prison is not like a walled fortress. It's not a walled fortress. It's more like a, a, a city where criminals are placed and left to survive on their own. It's far too far, to, far from the mainland to swim, so they can't go. They were just dropped off in the middle of the sea. And this is where the vision took place. And it's said to have taken place in a cave up on one of the hills there. And now there is a Greek Orthodox priest and a Greek, Greek Orthodox church now rest there. People come to this cave where it was in droves. In fact, it's one of the major tourist opportunities of, uh, of this island is to go and see this cave. And people go there and they touch the walls and they're hoping to get a vision like John. They're hoping to like just being in the presence of that place that they'll catch something that John caught. And the cave doesn't necessarily have significant meaning. But his visions of Jesus absolutely do. And so with that, let us look at one of the first things that John saw. He saw a sevenfold vision of Jesus. And so as we learned last week, seven is the number of perfection or the number of completion. And this Jesus, he says, I am the one who is the first and the last. Yet he is alive. 
that he died and is now alive forevermore and holds the keys to death and Hades. This is the vision that John saw and it caused him to fall like he was dead. And Jesus said, do not fear. But this shows us that this vision is a powerful one. That this Jesus that he sees, who I believe as Jesus walked on earth, John was very good friends with, as Jesus is seen in his complete and perfect form, he is a powerful one. Jesus is the mighty one. He looks like the Son of Man, which by the way is the name used for Jesus, but he's apparently more. Or at least in more of a complete form. And as we see that there are many parts of the kingdom, this kingdom that will endure. We also are shown a king that will endure, and that being and that being Jesus, who has and is lifted up above his and our enemies. First, Jesus is clothed like a priest. In this vision, he is dressed like a priest. He he presents God to us and us to God. He is the one who is offering the ultimate sacrifice for us for now and forever. And he does this for his own glory, but he does this out of his great love for us. Jesus gave up everything he has for us so that we might be his. Our high priest who lays down his life for us. He lived and died and was buried and rose again so that we might know him better. That we might see him better. So that we might see the Almighty God more clearly. And here in his priest garb, in his servant's garb, he reveals himself to John and gives John this vision of himself that is, will be forever. It's a more complete vision than what we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we need to see Jesus this way because it's not just Jesus... Um, meek and mild as we saw in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is a, a fuller picture of Christ. It's as if the author of Revelations and, and as the Holy Spirit put together the Bible, he didn't want us to leave the Holy Scriptures without seeing this picture of Jesus. Our confidence for, for our endurance is not rooted in ourselves, amen? It's not rooted in our own greatness, our own ability to hold on. It's rooted in who Christ was, is, and will be. And so as we get into it, we see that the hairs were white, white like wool, like snow. And this doesn't mean that we're seeing old man Jesus, this doesn't mean like the old guy upstairs with his big white fluffy beard or anything like that. In scriptures, over and over, the color white is used for a symbol for purity. And I'm not talking about skin color here. Like just so you know, black people can be just as pure as white people. Asian people can be just as pure as white people. And so can mixed blood children. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Amen. So... That is, yeah, that is my children. But here we see that white is a symbol for purity. And Jesus' hair being white shows us that he was in his pure form. And that in his pure form, he is totally 100% pure. Over the years, Jesus has been blamed for a lot of things, right? How many have blamed us? have blamed Jesus for some things over the years. But as we see him for who he truly is, he is innocent of any wrongdoing. Innocent of any wrongdoing. Jesus, with his 
white wool-like hair, his snow-like hair is sinless. He is free from the entanglements and the entrapments of sin's effects on life. He is totally holy and set apart for the priestly and kingly duty that God has set before him. It is from this purity that he says, you are clean by my blood. You are made spotless by my sacrifice for you. Our white as snowness comes from his white and snowness. No, uh, only someone that is this pure, as pure as Jesus is seen here, can give away the purity and bestow it on us. Other uses uh, of white in scripture, oftentimes they're used for wise or regal. And, and, and so we can see here too that Jesus is wise beyond anything and that he is regal. He is holy. He is set apart. He is king-like in his essence. And then we see Jesus, he has eyes that were like a flame of fire. And this is not like, I was thinking about this, right, with our modern day technology and movies. This is not like Jesus, like being like one of our superheroes where he lifts his glasses and shoots fire from his eyes. That is not what this is like. This is when Jesus looks at us, his sight brings purifying nature to it. When Jesus looks at us, he is purifying us. We can feel Jesus looking into us. Jesus with his eyes like flames of fire, look past the masks that we so carefully create and construct in our lives. These fake worlds that we build up so that, and he looks straight past those and right to our heart, not to melt us or to harm us, but to purify us. To purify us. Jesus' eyes look into our soul, and as he does that, he's cleaning us. He's pointing out areas. He's saying, here, I want this. I want you to surrender this to me. And when he does this, it's not to destroy us, even though it may hurt, but it's to give us new life and give us a better life. And the better life that he has for us is a life that's found in him and we get to walk with him. In other words, when Jesus looks at us, he corrects us. He changes us. He reveals us for who we truly are and he invites us to look into our own life and then follow him. And yet Jesus' feet here too were were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This refining that Jesus wants to do, this purification that Jesus wants us to do, Jesus has been through this purification as well. That is what makes him so steady. It makes him so steady. It's what makes him so secure. His feet show us that in this picture. That they are like bronze that are refined. They're pure bronze. Then bronze that is immovable and steady. That he has established forever in this priest-king role that he has and he will not move away from it ever. He is established forever and ever and ever and as we go through our trials and through our the things that we need to endure, we're going to be able to see Jesus established forever and then follow him. But I love this too. Jesus' voice was like the roar of many waters. And I like this for a number of reasons. One of them being that I was on a river this week talking with a friend. And I'll, I'll share that in a minute. But Jesus' voice is like liquid. 
It can get in and around anything. It can speak to you. And it's more powerful than any raging river or ocean current. When I was fishing this week, I saw the fish jumping on the other shore, so I tried to wade across. And I don't think I told Mo this part yet, but I almost got swept away, and I'm like, oh man, it was only up to my knees. It wasn't even that deep, and I almost got swept away. And Jesus, it just reminds me that as you get to this verse, that He was like the roar of many waters. His his voice is strong. His voice is strong. Jesus uses, used His voice to create the earth. He used it to speak it into existence. He uses His voice to transform it. His voice is to be obeyed and a little feared because it's that awesome. It's that powerful. Remember, it was His voice that spoke creation into an existence. And yet we we like to also use water in many different ways. We use it to clean ourselves, right? And Jesus is an agent. uh, His his words over us are an agent that take away any dirt or uh, uh, debris and they make us look and smell presentable to others. Jesus' voice is a powerful agent in changing, shaping and cleansing our hearts and shaping and cleansing this world. And if you ever uh, stood next to a river with a friend, you guys have done this, and I did this with Jason Chinovsky this week, it appears that um, it always sounds like your friend is talking to you, like at all times. I don't know how many times this week I was like, what, what? And Jason's like, nothing. Or he would do the same thing to me. And we can see that as his voice was like the roar of many waters, it's constant. It's always there. God is trying to speak to us in more ways than we can imagine. Sometimes it comes from our friends where they're speaking a word to us in love. But like many waters, this is, we get to listen. And if you talk to a friend by many waters, you need to get close, you need to be still, and you can listen to them then. And that's how Jesus wants to speak to us. But Jesus also has in his right hand, he held the seven stars. Jesus has the heavens and the earth in control. The seven stars are the seven angels and he is powerful enough and he will protect us in what he does. That's what this, the right hand means is that he is powerful and he will protect us. It's like the, uh, the old song. Jesus has got the whole world in his hands. He's got it. He has this. The the heavens are His. The earth are His. The angels are under His command. And this shows us that Jesus is in absolute control. When He says He's going to protect us, He's not lying. And He's strong enough to do it. This shows us that Jesus is in control of all the things that we see and the things that we don't see. I love that angels are used here for the seven stars because it's the supernatural. It's the supernatural. Those, the supernatural is held in God's right hand. He knows it. He controls it. He sees it. But also, so is our future, which we can't see. It's in his hands. Jesus is big enough to have everything under control and keep it under his control. And then out of his mouth came a sharp to a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus' words will also judge us. They'll also cut us to the quick. 
This two-edged sword can pierce the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrows. It can discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. You guys can look up Hebrews 4 later and read it because this is exactly what it's talking about. But if we did see that Jesus judges us, He does so to purify us and to comfort us. He does this as a high priest. When God says we're not perfect, Jesus isn't going to hide us from the fact that we aren't perfect. He's going to reveal what is hidden to our eyes to show us, but ultimately to draw us nearer to Him, to comfort us, because he is, not one, he is one that sympathizes with our weakness. And in our weakness, he invites us to draw near to him. And then his face, Jesus' face, was like the sun shining in full strength. Just take a moment, everybody, and look at the sun. Look directly at it. And it's brighter than that. Jesus, don't look at it. It was a joke. Yeah, sorry. Um, you're not supposed to. Because Jesus... Uh, there will in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't need a sun because Jesus will be there, shining in full force. Jesus will shine through every spiritual darkness that we ever face. Jesus will shine his light and expose all the evil and wickedness that goes in this world, in our own hearts, and in the hearts of corporations, and the hearts of countries, and the hearts of people. He will shine it and expose it and everybody will see that it, what it is. And no one will be confused by it anymore. And every sin that has been committed will get exposed because nothing can, shine, or nothing can hide from Jesus when He is shining at full force. This picture of Jesus, this is the key to our new life. This is the key to endurance. New life is found in Him and in Him alone. And we get to have our perspectives changed by Jesus to see this larger picture of who Christ is. There is nothing that He doesn't see. There's nothing that He cannot change. There's nothing He cannot forgive. There's nothing that He won't redeem. And He does, and he does in this picture seem very much like the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and He is who we worship. Revelation gives us this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And as we finish this out, we also see seven lampstands and seven stars, and then it's, uh, it, it, this scripture translates what those are for us. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the seven stars are the seven angels over those churches. And in this, we are invited to see so much more. More of this life in Christ that, that is ours through His great sacrifice. In Revelation, we see the realm of God's kingdom intersect the kingdom of earth. We see that both are important to Him. We see that we're not Gnostics. We're not, we don't say the Spirit's always good. The flesh is bad. No, God redeems it all. And it's all good. And in Revelation, we see the realms of God's kingdom intersect with the kingdoms here on earth. Things that are outside our space and time mingle within the things that are limited by space and time. 
It opens us up to see what we are dealing with. And we are dealing with not just the things that are seen, but things that are unseen as well. Like, we know that Jesus wins, but oftentimes it doesn't feel like he's victorious. Do we feel that way, right? Or that, that oftentimes um, we believe, or well, we do believe that he will come with the clouds, but we haven't seen it yet. There are things that we can see that we are dealing with and there are unseen things. Or we can say it this way, there is more at stake here than we know. There's more at stake here than we can see. There's more going on in and around us, both spiritual, both supernatural and natural. And this vision is opening our eyes and inviting us to see the ways that God's kingdom works. John is trying to use earthly words to describe both earthly actions and non-earthly events. And this leads us to see that there are mysteries and secrets that are beyond us. Amen? This is super humbling. Just the fact, the language that is used here, the fact that there are things that we cannot see, cannot explain, and this is humbling, and we get to keep this mystery before us. The fact that we can't know everything that we want to know is oftentimes a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. We get to use our imaginations, but we also have to realize that our imaginations have limits that we can't see. And oftentimes they're constructed out of our own image and not the image that God would have for us. A reminder that this book is not a code to crack. It is showing us a bigger picture of who Christ is so that we can endure with him forever as trials come. That we might last with Jesus until our last breath. And in this, though, we are the seven lampstands. This glorious light that Christ is trying to show forth, the churches are the light of the world. We represent Jesus, not just as individuals, but as a whole. And this is why, this is why it's so important to strive for unity and peace with our fellow Christians. On earth, as it is in heaven, we pray that every week, and, and we pray that it appears that way from Christ's view because he sees the, the bride, the church of God, as pure, spotless, and holy. And in this, we see that the seven lampstands are centered around Christ, and the church are centered around Christ, and they are to be a light to the nations. And you know what? We don't do this perfectly. Amen? We don't do this perfectly. And we know that many Christians don't either. But as John addressed this letter, as God said to us, grace and peace to us. May we strive. May we understand this. May we strive to keep Christ as our center. May we strive to stay in the circle with others that it's not just us and the way we view things. May we strive to endure in the midst of this world to stay centered on Christ. So let us join with our brothers and sisters and endure whatever is before us and behind us. Let us be filled with the Holy Spirit and see Jesus in a more complete and real form as we walk into the mystery of our faith. As we walk into what God has for us with a fuller confidence that Jesus is bigger, that he's better, that he's greater, that he's more loving, that he's more seen, more knowing, more exposing, and more comforting than we could ever imagine.
And I pray that this vision of Christ will allow us to worship Jesus with more sincerity, with more completeness, and with more reverence and awe. So Christ, as we look to you, will you do this work in us? In Jesus' name, amen.